welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and FocusWire's weekly podcast about the innovators in travel, transportation, and hospitality. Today, we're joined by Noah Brodsky, the president of Travel and Leisure Group and the chief brand officer of Travel and Leisure Co., which includes the Wyndham Destinations, Panorama, and Travel Leisure Group businesses. Travel and Leisure has made an interesting transformation with the launch of Travel and Leisure Group, which includes the recently launched book, TNL, a subscription travel club. And so we're super happy to have you here with us today, Noah. Thanks for having me, David and Kevin. So as you know, we like to start off every one of these interviews the same way, which is for us to ask you how you got here. I got here because my mom and my dad took me to Disney World when I was four years old. And that trip triggered in me a lifelong love of travel and vacations. And everything I've done in my career ever since then is trying to replicate the joy that four-year-old me felt with my brothers and sisters driving cross country from St. Louis, Missouri down to Orlando, Florida to have the best vacation of my life at four. And since that moment, I knew I wanted to be in this business and have had and have ever since then pursued an entire career leading up to getting to show people how to take amazing vacations. And, you know, a few years after that, you know, little little Noah Brodsky was sneaking into the library to read back issues of National Geographic and Travel and Leisure and Condé Nast Traveler and get inspired about all these places all over the country and all over the world that I wanted to grow when I grew up. And when I had a chance to go to college, I knew the right pick for me was, uh, was a hospitality degree. So I went to Cornell Hotel School, only college I applied to much to the consternation of my parents, I, I applied to exactly one school and said, this is the only place I'm going. And if I don't get in, I'm not going to college. Uh, and had an amazing four years there, interviewed with some of the best hospitality companies on earth and got to go to work for four seasons and operations for a couple of years. Uh, ha- have a, a great story there. I, I can share about taking that job and, and how I got in, into it. Uh, and then from Four Seasons, went back to do business school as I wanted to make the jump from operations into uh, a leadership role with a hospitality company. Interned and worked for Starwood Hotels uh, in the U.S. and got to work with them based in Brussels for 18 months and in, in Asia as well. Uh, then had, was briefly got my first dose of startup life with a, at the time, small real estate startup in New York City called WeWork and joined them as chief experience, chief marketing officer, running operations as well for that company. Was there briefly, but quickly knew my passions were not in the real estate business, but definitely in the hospitality business. So rejoined another great hotel company, Wyndham Hotels, under the leadership of one of my old bosses, Jeff Bellotti, who who I had worked for at Starwood and then had the opportunity to join uh, what was at the time Wyndham Destinations. And that takes me all the way full circle to looking at rebranding opportunities for Wyndham Destinations and have been passionate about travel and leisure through that entire 
through that entire time and knew that if we could leverage all of the incredible brand value of travel and leisure as we looked at the next evolution in our company, that that would bring something to the marketplace that didn't exist before. And so we completed the acquisition in February, rebranded our company, launched a couple of new products, have more coming out, and are setting course on a brand new type of subscription travel service that I think is going to be an exciting evolution for what all travel is going forward. Amazing. A lot to unpack there. Someone who applied to 21 colleges, I'm certainly envious of you. You're one <laughs> and uh, you paid off. Um, so, you know, I, I want to delve deep into this last part here. You, Wyndham Vacations bought or bought or licensed. And first of all, I think we need to kind of delve into like exactly what your financial relationship is, because my understanding is that Meredith still runs travel and leisure, the, the like the editing side, the magazine. You guys bought the brand, but the people who formerly own the brand still run the what every, everyone else understands to be travel and leisure. And you guys are launching an OTA behind it called Book TNL. And I think um, there's a lot to unpack there. It's a very interesting merger, um, uh, if we can call it that. And, you know, please you know, bring us into the psychology of why and how it's working. Yeah, so one of the absolute fundamentals to the deal was that we needed Meredith to maintain the magazine. Uh, so there were a couple of reasons for that. First and foremost, we want editorial independence. We want suppliers uh, around the world and everybody who's in the magazine and on the advertiser side to know that it's a completely independent magazine, not run and operated by myself or anybody else uh, at Travel and Leisure Co. Uh, so doing this license back to Meredith of the editorial side of it, keeping their entire uh, really phenomenal editorial team intact was critical for us to to make this business work. We wanted them to have all of the expertise. We wanted the trust that the brand had. Uh, and frankly, we don't want to run a magazine. That's not our core business. We don't want to do the advertising, the publishing side, and they're really good at that. So that was a huge part of what made this deal from the very outset, something that was feasible for both companies because they like the publishing business we like all of the potential brand extensions we can do from the brand. And so that match made for a really good connection. It's a 30 year uh, extendable license back to Meredith for them to produce the magazine. We own the brand, as you said, and we ultimately own all of the content once it's produced, but have zero impact whatsoever on the content uh, until it hits the magazine or the website. Uh, so we, well, like other advertisers, we know what's going to be published a little bit before it comes out, but we have no impact whatsoever in what they write. So what was the idea behind taking travel and leisure and turning into an OTA? Was it, you know, give, I guess you like the brand. Why did you like the brand? You know, it clearly there's a lot of inspirational content that they, they put out. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can launch a, an OTA. Um, you guys already had other existing you know, uh, businesses and maybe understand why Wyndham wanted to get into this. Yeah. So the play here, interestingly, is not the booking platform, not the OTA. But let me answer you the other half of the question first, which is what did we see in travel and leisure? We did a, a pretty extensive study with our own data, as well as looking at a lot of research and information that's out there. We evaluated it over 50 brands as we looked at the strategy here. Travel and leisure consistently comes up in the top two or three in terms of awareness 
uh, and trustworthiness. And if you look at the universe of brands that are available for sale, I would argue it, it might have been number one uh, in awareness, you know, over 90% awareness amongst US travelers, a great global presence as well with issues printed in 12 countries around the world. Uh, very, very high trust scores as well. It's 50 years old, thousands and thousands of pieces of historical content. So a really phenomenal brand that largely has been untapped beyond its editorial, um, its editorial relevance and prestige. Uh, what we do really, really well is run membership travel, whether that's a you know, at our high end and our presidential reserve brand, whether that's a hundred thousand dollar timeshare, all the way down to our RCI clubs that have, you know, that have an annual exchange, maybe around two hundred and fifty dollars, uh, to some of our niche community clubs like our Armed Forces Travel Club. Uh, what we do is travel clubs. We grow members. We provide benefits. Uh, what Travel and Leisure has is a phenomenal brand. Our belief was that putting those two things together could really unlock a direct-to-consumer travel product for us that we have not had before. The vast majority of our clubs are B2B2C or, or they are timeshare, which is perpetual ownership. And you know we know that the average Travel and Leisure reader takes eight vacations a year. We're capturing in our company yeah, uh, you know, even for someone who is a reader, you know, we capture maybe two to three vacations a year of our average consumer. So there's this big untapped potential of vacations uh, that we thought we could get to with a different type of product. Uh, so why isn't it just the OTA? Because what uh, uh, for us, the booking platform is really an introduction to the brand. It's the most logical way that you're going to go from reading the content either in print or online to us being able to add a booking widget or uh, book now information at the bottom of the article and seamlessly bring you into a booking experience. So we can offer all of, we can curate all of the itineraries that are in the magazine and directly bring you into those in a booking experience. And that's the technology that we're continuing to develop around uh, our booking platform, booktnl.com. But the real key here is for us is around the membership club component. So the membership club, the Travel and Leisure Club, which we'll be launching this summer in the ballpark of 10 bucks a month, what that does is really unlock additional benefits on all of the TNL editorial content to people who are members of the club. So that can be value adds while you're traveling, special uh, reservations uh, or access, uh, and of course, discounts on a lot of the things that you read about. All of those pieces will be specifically for club members and advertised in an integrated way from the print magazine to the digital components, all the way into merchandising it when you're on booktnl.com. You know, before we get onto the subscription part, because um, I feel like every day I get forwarded a pitch deck for a new members subscription travel club for you know, millennials, Gen Z, or whatever it may be. Um, I think we can delve into that. Uh, you, you guys, there's a long history of travel inspiration startups out there, Wanderfly, Trippy, a lot of other guys like that who are you know, trying to go up funnel. And the, what I find interesting about your guys' you know, strategy is that these, these players, were, they've always said, um, you know, like, you know, 
if we can capture the, the user early, we could sell them all these other things. And usually they failed because they captured the user early and didn't sell them anything. So um, I'm curious how you guys have thought about taking people from the inspiration stage where they read your magazine. And clearly, you know, uh, Travel and Leisure is a system, you know, relatively sustainable business as, as, uh, as sustainable as any, I guess, media print uh, organization is these days. Um, you know, selling advertising, they have to have their own business model. But how do you capture someone who goes, oh, well, that's a really pretty hotel, you know, and potentially has no interest in, in booking right now and get them to the book stage? Have you guys thought about that at all? Yeah, and, and you know, that's, the the trick of us having a mature business around the the club membership and the value what we were missing uh you know what we're good at is those booking conversions for people who are ready to travel what we didn't have was the upstream access to use your words uh, you know i think that if you look at what's going to make subscription business successful beyond travel right if you look at netflix or a meal subscription or anything i think there's there's two pieces of it. There's value, there's content and value. And I think that we had, we have a great value case and we've had that for a long time across our portfolio of nearly 20 brands. We didn't have the content case and the content is what captures people upstream and gets them interested and excited and looking in the funnel. The value is what gets the conversion. So what if we can show a consistent value and and that's not just a discounting platform right that's that's everything that's access everything we talked about access and benefits and um itineraries if we can show that consistent value uh that will lead to more conversions part, you know meredith part of the acquisition here beyond just the brand there were a number of other tangibles that came with the acquisition one of which was two existing membership clubs the travel and leisure elite traveler and travel and leisure family travel club these are both legacy travel clubs dating back the travel and leisure brand has gone through a couple of transactions uh these two clubs date back to its american express ownership uh and synapse uh which was an mx company as well at the time which then went to time inc and then to meredith and and now uh to us synapse is still with meredith and we picked up the travel clubs as part of this so we have 50 uh about sixty thousand members in these two clubs uh most of whom have 10 plus years of being in the clubs so there is there is a business model in here where they've been able to effectively capture and convert these members these two clubs have been closed to new member growth for the last couple of years through some of these last transactions with timing so part of our plan is to reopen to essentially merge the clubs uh, and reopen our travel club for new membership growth uh, what travel and leisure offered then i think is still as relevant today which is combining all of the aspirational con content with a way to easily go book it, go do it, and then get a great value while you're doing it. So let's delve into the subscription stuff and the member stuff, because um, I'm not exaggerating when I say I see a, a pitch deck a week about, you know, some new sort of subscription platform. TripAdvisor launched a subscription platform. Um, I think I know a lot of people who look at the industry are, are trying to figure out, is there a there there and subscription in general? Um, little known fact outside of uh, you know the people I work on this with I'm starting a private members club in, in New York City actually at the moment um, and one of the things I've noticed is you know like the this idea of members like you know there's an icky feeling sometimes when memberships 
grow too big. And there's almost a feeling of like, well, if there's a hundred thousand other people signed up, well, I can't be getting something super special anymore. And, um, you know, when it comes to deals and, and stuff like that, I find as these things grow, they don't scale very well as well. Uh, what is the, the real value out of here? How are you thinking about, you know, subscription value that can't just be, you know, uh, retrieved without a subscription? Yeah. The, so TripAdvisor Plus, you know, I think they're a, a big part of their bet is is the same content plus value. Their content is crowdsourced content. Our content is expert content. You know, two, two different slices at, I think, the same big bet, which is you need phenomenal content to cut through those hundreds of other pitch decks. And it's the reason we didn't try and build this on ourselves. Uh, it's, a, it's the core reason we went out and spent $100 million acquiring the best expert editorial travel content in the world, because we believe that that's, that that is a high barrier to entry uh, that is going to be really important for, uh, for one half of the equation of this club. The other half around the value, I think actually in the travel space, we're able to demonstrate greater value with a little bit of a larger base as we go and work with suppliers. So imagine we're, thinking right now about the Travel News Your September issue, and we start to find out what some of the articles are coming out in September. And we get to go ahead uh, of the of that content and go start to talk to some of those suppliers and say, hey, the Travel News Your editorial team is featuring you in an article this September. Now, historically, the TNL has had these suppliers for decades say, great, can I give you an offer code? Can you do something? in the magazine and their answer is no, you can, you're welcome to buy an ad, but we don't put offer codes in the magazine. We don't, you know, we're not gonna blast an offer code or a retail message out to our readers. That's not what we do. We now have a way that we can go as, as another arm of the brand and say, hey, would you like to talk to our X hundred thousand members with a great offer concurrently with when you're going to come out in the magazine. And we can give you that retail oriented message. And in return, you need to have a special unique offer for these members that's connected to what the editorial content was so that the members can get to live a bit like an editor uh, and, and take those trips. Uh, so that's the message that we give out to suppliers. As we have a little bit bigger base, I think that allows us um, more opportunities with suppliers to bring great value back to the back to the reader base or back to the subscribing base. So it's primarily a financial that you pay, pay 10 bucks a month, you'll save more than 10 bucks a month or more than 110 or $120 a year for your one vacation or get enough perks. Is, is that true? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's the idea. Certainly, you know, I think it's not, um, while discounts is an important part of it, it's also all the aspirational benefits. And what's cool about TNL is it's, you know, they're not just writing about big box hotels in capitals. Uh, so, you know, you're going to get little, and it's not, it's leisure too. It's not just hotels, right? So we're going to be focused beyond just hotels. We're going to be looking at that cool little uh, six room rest, you know, six, six room lodge or a 10 table restaurant and, and reaching out to them to make sure that we can get access as well. Uh, it, which is a very leisure oriented focus different than perhaps uh, credit card benefits where you may get, yeah, you may get an early check-in and a free breakfast, but it's at the, you know, at these big, big box, big city hotels. 
That's not the travel and leisure dream. The travel and leisure dream is living this really cool, authentic, aspirational trip. Travel and leisure writes as much, uh, you know, about backpacking and budget travel uh, as, and they also write about five-star luxury trips and everything in between. So it's a very broad audience. I think that finds that, um, that type of travel that, that TNL has become synonymous with as, as really appealing. Unusually for our How I Got Here interviews, we've covered off a lot of the more recent stuff early on. We're normally quite linear. So now we've covered off all the early stuff, which is great. And it's fascinating what you're trying to do. And um, I, I'd be very interested to see how that all kind of pans out over the next uh, weeks and months. When you were a restaurant manager in 2002, what were your ambitions? Did you think in 19 years' time, I could be merging companies, rebranding? organizations making these massive strategic decisions or were you just quite happy i i say it that it isn't a big job but you know compared to what you're doing now the responsibility is arguably more now but when you were the restaurant manager in 2002 to 2005 what were you hoping to do in 17 years time i went to be a restaurant manager because i loved food I discovered my, I, I think my mom is a, is a great cook and makes uh, wonderful traditional uh, Jewish foods like brisket and matzo ball soup. And, uh, but I got to New York and got to the culinary program and learned about this whole new world of food. And coming out of Cornell, I applied with uh, Waldorf Astoria and with, uh, well, I applied with Waldorf Astoria first and their interview process was actually early in my senior year. And I went through the interview process, went to the Waldorf Astoria. They put me up in like a little mini suite. Uh, and I thought like I had died and gone to heaven. It was <laughs> the, the nicest room I'd ever been in my life. It was fantastic. And uh, they made me a job offer and I, uh, to join them as a food and beverage manager. And I said, I, I just, I need a couple, you guys are early. I need a couple of weeks to think about it. And then had a Four Seasons interview and uh, went to the Four Seasons interview and uh, told, was very frank with in the interview. And I said, hey guys, I, um, I have a job offer from Waldorf Astoria, at, which I'm really excited about. And the only thing that would get me not to say yes to Waldorf Astoria would be is if I could go to Hawaii because I've never been to Hawaii and it's this like life dream. And if I could go to Hawaii, I would, I would take this job. And I was interviewing with an HR manager and she said, can you hang out for like two hours at the lobby of the Statler hotel? Can you hang out for a couple of hours and I'll call you back. I'll come get you. Uh, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll wait. And so I went downstairs. She brought me up a couple of hours later and she had brought over Thomas Steinhauer, who at the time, I think was general manager of the Four Seasons in New York. And the two of them did another interview with me. And at the end of the interview, they said, okay, Noah, we're going to offer you a job at the Four Seasons Maui. Your job offer expires when you walk out of this room. What are you going to do? <laughs> and I said, where's the paper? I'm signing it right now. I'm moving to Hawaii. And I took, got a couple of months later, got a duffel bag and moved to Hawaii and became a restaurant manager. Uh, I was working the breakfast shift at the Four Seasons Maui, uh, starting at 4 a.m. every morning. And I was living the dream. And, you know, those first couple of years, what was in my head was I want to be the best 
restaurant manager that I can be. I want to run the most profitable restaurant I can run for this hotel and have the happiest guests and be the best at what I'm doing right now. And that was, I, I was there in Hawaii. I got to open the Four Seasons Costa Rica and Papagayo as a restaurant manager. I got to meet uh, Isidore Sharp when he came for the grand opening, which is uh, a highlight of any Four Seasons employee's uh, career. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. And I knew at that time that, um, you know, I loved, I, I still loved the hospitality industry. And I remember I had a great um, mentor, John Washko, who at the time was the head of food and beverage for Four Seasons. And he actually, he wrote my recommendation into business school. And he said, no, what are you doing? I was, I guess, 25 at the time. He said, what are you doing applying to business school? Don't you understand if you stuck with Four Seasons, you could be a general manager by the time you're 40. <laughs> and it, it was, the, you know, it was an incredible accomplishment and, and a great ego boost to hear that from somebody who I idolized at the time, but also a check for, I think, any 20-something-year-old who's going, man, by the time I'm 40, uh, you know, that's my, that's my boss's boss. That's only two levels up. Uh, is that really all I want by the time I'm 40? And as I, went, as I wrote my business school essays, I think it was a great opportunity to, to refocus and say, all right, well, what do I want to do? I want to change the world in hospitality. I want to help more people go on vacation than ever got to go on vacation before. I want to inspire little kids growing up in Missouri that they're someday going to get to travel the world uh, and take their family and their kids on incredible vacations. And I've pushed my career to get to do those things. It's interesting when you talk about that you were, I think you said you were in your mid-20s and your mentor said, oh, you can be a general manager by the time you're 40. Has that, now that you are the leader of a company, has that informed the way that you set out the career path or the career ladder that your own, you know, up and coming executives are going through? Because presumably you wouldn't want them to be in the same situation of being in their mid twenties and looking at their watches and going, oh, it's another 15 years before I'm even a GM. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, the, the advice I give students uh, when I talk to, to people who are just graduating college or, you know, is to get that operations experience there for me, for me, the most valuable job I probably ever had or jobs I ever had in my career were line level uh, and line level management hospitality jobs, because whether that was, I ran a dishwashing department for four seasons for a half a year and I've waited tables in college and, and done all uh, my first my first real job was a room service waiter. So I think those line level jobs and then into line level management positions where you man where you actually manage teams and you and and hard teams of hard work, hard career workers, I think is some of the most valuable experience that someone can get when young. And as they grow their career, you know, the other thing that I learned with my career is while I've while I've essentially spent seven years at two companies and about five years at four seasons. So really three years with or three three notable companies in my career those shifts from company to company have been critical and i've stayed with as i mentioned before i've stayed with some of the same leaders has been some of the reasons that i've moved careers but a couple of very smart very strategic career shifts 
uh, or company shifts can help jumpstart a career. Another mentor of mine when I was at Starwood, and as I mentioned, I went to Starwood as a MBA intern uh, and had a, a phenomenal mentor in Hoyt Harper, who was the head of Sheridan and, and my boss for, for about seven years there. You know, one piece of advice he gave me, I, I left Starwood as a vice president. And um, he said to me at one point, he said, Noah, you are always going to be thought of here as an intern who's doing really well. <laughs> and that was that that's when I went to WeWork to go do something different. And, you know, I don't think no matter how well, how successful I had been, I don't think I ever was going to have management look at me other than someone as an intern who had done really well. And those shifts, I think, are critical. Uh, Again, very smartly done. I'm not advocating someone job hops, you know, every couple of years here because that has negative impacts. But those smart career shifts, I think, can make a big difference in someone's career trajectory. You mentioned WeWork right at the beginning, and just now I think it's worth just touching on that. I mean, uh, eight months, I believe you were there, something like that. I mean, how was that? <laughs> I think it be just the, the very, very open-ended question I can ask. Yeah, well, I mean, WeWork is everything. Uh, it, it is everything that has been written about it and, um, and probably everything that... Um, Will be written about it. Will be written about it is all true. I think Anne Hathaway and uh, and Jared Leto are are, are doing a movie now. It's probably all true too. You know this. It's um, what I loved about WeWork. What I still love about WeWork is this idea that through communal learning and communal growth, we can all get better. I think I absolutely saw startups in the WeWork environment. And now in our corporate environment, I've redesigned one of our offices. Uh, the floor where all of my brand and digital team sits have been redesigned uh, to look in glass offices and in that WeWork-esque style. I do believe that that communal environment does create connectivity and ideas and innovation in a way that the classic cube and closed door office setting does not. And I think that they really struck on this idea that your time you spend in your office can be enjoyable and fun. And I think that that will forever change the way offices are built and designed. Uh, so I, there, there absolutely is a, is a, you know, a life-changing, I think world-changing um, design uh, concept that we work had and and i'm still a, a big believer in that in that part of the business other than the culture and the open plan side of things which i completely get and it's you know it's terrific that you're starting to bring that into uh, to tnl is there anything around the culture of a startup that you learned there that you would either like to implement or wouldn't go anywhere near implementing well, one of the cool things, you know, back at that time at WeWork, the vast majority of the members at WeWork were startups. Now I think it's much heavier on the corporate side, but back then pretty much every single office was a startup. And it was so cool walking from office to office and getting to know all of these members because we were we were in there too. Our corporate offices were in were in one of the buildings and getting to know all these members and seeing the different approaches that they had uh, to startups and and also the level of passion that so many of these founders brought and you know if there is one thing I think that ties together so many of them it's this absolute passion in the product that they're selling and certainly Adam uh, of WeWork 
shares in that passion as well. Now, there's lots of ways, I think, to express that passion uh, to your associates. And I, I tend to, you know, um, I, what I love about our current culture is how uh, friendly and, and familiar we are while also maintaining, a, you know, the understanding that we're your job and you also have a home. Uh, and, but seeing the way lots of different startups did it, it I think for any young entrepreneur or, or, or just pretty much anyone, I think it's fascinating just to spend some time in a WeWork building and getting to know these founders uh, and understanding how they're growing their business. It's, it's really amazing. So what's next? You, you, you launched Booktino, but I, you, you kind of corrected me at the beginning there when I said, oh, you launched this OTA. He's like, well, it's not about all the, only about the OTA. So uh, I want to kind of know what, what, what's coming up. We've, uh, so we've got the club launching, as I mentioned. You know, the other piece of business that we acquired is a licensing business for the travel and leisure brand. Uh, so Meredith uh, is the world's second largest brand licensor. Uh, at, which is a surprise to many after uh, after Disney, which is the largest uh, through their better homes and gardens and good housekeeping brands, which are their two largest and, and a number of others. They have a large licensing operation where they take these storied titles, uh, you know, Meredith over the years had Sports Illustrated and People and Time and you know, all these storied titles and find uh, interesting ways to bring those brands to life outside of just a magazine. They, because they've had travel and leisure for so little time, they hadn't really gotten to, to, to run those traps on the travel and leisure brand. We're really excited about the potential of travel and leisure. So with the acquisition, there's a great line of luggage that's produced by Travel Pro. There's a line of airport stores that's managed by Hudson News Sellers. And we certainly can imagine travel and leisure uh, as a product beyond just uh, the membership club. And, you know, and I think there's a really interesting synergistic connection there as we push travel and leisure into the products, retail and experiences space, how that can also tie back as a, a strong uh, club membership. So that's something that's new and exciting for us. And we believe has some potential, perhaps more as a brand awareness tool, than as uh, than as a pure EBITDA driver in a company the size of ours, but certainly uh, an excite a fun and exciting opportunity, and that's global as well. You know, I mentioned before the brand is is published in a number of countries. You know, in particular in the Chinese market, the travel and leisure brand, uh, as are many American things, is is lifted up uh, another star or two in terms of its advertiser base and its. Um, and its readers. So there's some really interesting licensing opportunities around the world for us as well. So that's that's a fun one we're excited to, to start working on as well. I want to go back to a comment you made uh, at the beginning. You said content um, and value, you said. You know, what's interesting as I think about everyone who's entering this this market right now with um, there's kind of like a a lot of people who want to match with a lot of different travel experts and, and say, well, here's the recommendations of those travel experts. And it kind of seems like, and I, and I think it's an outlook and solution that you guys have had. You guys said, well, just spend hundred million dollars and acquire the content. Um, and it is, is, is that basically what you think the secret sauce is here? Bluntly, you know, TripAdvisor has, you know, is a multi-billion dollar company that has figured out the user generated content kind of angle. You guys have figured out the kind of expert generated content, content angle is for anyone who's entering this market of subscription, you know, member club kind of stuff is, is content really the key, is the, is that the, the key to it all, in your opinion? 
that seems to be the key as you look across other industries. And you know, certainly, I think when you look at your, okay, maybe this is the most obvious example, but when you look at what streaming services you're gonna buy, you're looking first and foremost at content and what do they have? If you're looking at the food uh, prepared meal service you're gonna order, you're looking at their content, who has the best chefs and the best recipes and the best photo galleries of the food you're gonna get. Uh, and when you're looking at, you know, all, all of these categories, I think content continues to be, uh, continues to be a constant. And we've seen other hospitality companies very publicly announce that they're going to spend tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to build content studios and, um, you know, acquire content companies. And um, it's really hard to do it on your own. And so, yes, that is our bet. Our bet is that content is the key to unlock uh, the, the connection between connect you know between the customers and the conversion and we believe that travel and leisure that editorial team plus the back library is by far the most effective way for us to do it challenging you a little bit on that i hope you don't mind um you know there's a uh, going into the content side and you know kevin could attest this as a reporter right you know you've got the rise of substack and you see all these major content iconic content producers actually breaking off from bigger brands. Um, the founder of Vox is now, you know, off, you know, on doing its own thing. You know, with brands they founded, they are now leaving um, and, you know, making two to three times as much money. And the idea, you know, I think is, you know, kind of this unbundling of the, these former content bundles. And what I find interesting about what you guys are doing and is that you guys basically went and bought almost the ultimate content bundle. And, you know, there's, there's two ways to kind of look at this is that, you know, yeah, for what it's worth, I'm actually not very bullish on TripAdvisor subscription products just because I don't really get it. But um, so this isn't meant to be, you know, I'm not taking their side by any means here, but more just like there's maybe a case to be made for, well, you know, is buying the traditional magazine the way to get that content? Have you thought of, you know, either how you supplement the traditional with some of these other trends or what is your view on that kind of overall media trend that's happening? Yeah, so the... Um... You know, travel and leisure has it continues to do exceptionally well as a brand pre-acquisition. Their both their print subscription and their digital visits are up double digits. I'd say over the last six to twelve months, we know that the only way you could experience travel was uh, was to read about it. So that certainly has has played to a strength of theirs. You know, we we certainly see. You know, there could have been risk in maintaining the magazine, which again, back, back to the what we talked about before, was one of the really important reasons that contractually Meredith has, is going to continue to produce this magazine for us. Uh, we believe it, they believe in it, but who knows where publishing will continue to be in 10 or 15 years. So that was an important part of the, the deal construct. And, you know, beyond that, I think content is 50% of the story and the other 50% of it is value. I, I probably am more bullish on on TripAdvisor, uh, you know, I, I'd love to see us as the Apple and Netflix of travel subscriptions as, uh, as we can, or the Disney plus perhaps with its expert content and versus the Netflix with its, uh, more crowdsourced content point of view. Um, you know, I, I think that burn to Netflix, <laughs> like YouTube, uh... YouTube, there you go. YouTube, uh, YouTube premium. <laughs> Thank you, David. I'll, I'll, I'll use that one. Um, I, you know, I think that uh, that content's half the play and values the other half. And if and if we can show a really strong value that's worth more than your 
$10 a month or $99 a year, then it, you know, that doesn't become a heavy ask to a consumer when they can see that savings applied towards their first booking. It would be fair to say that the situation that you're in now and the acquisition that you've made, it's very much of a time and a place of now, and it probably wouldn't have happened or made sense 10 years ago. And the reason I say that is in the mid 2000s, you had web 2.0. And everyone, everyone was a publisher, everyone was a blogger, everyone was, it was user-generated content. And that wave has gone and there has now been this perhaps, um, perhaps yearning is perhaps a too strong a word, but there is a, now a value on professionally written premium content. And that's what you've managed to grab now is that kind of zeitgeist about people actually quite into reading what other people have written rather than just looking what other what their friends have written on a blog or, or Instagram or whatever. Is that is that fair? I absolutely hope this is renaissance of travel writing. The you know, the the value to me as a traveler and you know what our consumer research shows of having expert written travel advice is really high. It's really hard to dig through thousands of reviews and blog posts to figure out uh, or, or look at, you know, thousands and thousands of options. You get fatigued with that. So sometimes that's exactly what you want. Other times you just want something, you just want, you say, I'm going to New York, just tell me where to stay. Just give me two choices. Just tell me what their hot restaurant is so I can just go there and do it. And I don't want to go try and figure it out on uh, Yelp all by myself. And so I, I absolutely believe that what you said is right in that this is a time and a place for it uh, from a from that content and from that great editorial perspective. It, it also is the time and the place for it for our company. And as you look at the maturation of the timeshare uh, business model, which has become, which is now heavily branded uh, you know, much of a much higher reputation, um, but but with that also price points are up. Um, you know, there's certainly continues to be our, our core timeshare business under the Wyndham brands will continue to grow, but there is also uh, a, a growing market, underserved market of people who are interested in some kind of travel club that perhaps aren't being served today by the large branded timeshare players. There's again, there's this big gap between the $20,000 timeshare and the $100, uh, $100 travel club. Okay. So we're coming towards the end. It's a question that I was quite keen on asking people, especially when, uh, when so much of the conversation has been very positive and not, not, I'm not just trying to be a journalist and be negative, but you know, everyone makes mistakes. So if you could identify one of your biggest mistakes and how you uh, learned from it. Sure. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with a bit of a cheeky one. The first job I got fired from uh, was a restaurant prep cook where I so totally destroyed a batch of blueberry muffins uh, by oversalting them that the chef tasted it, spit on the floor and told me to go away and never come back. Uh, <laughs> I learned that I was not meant to be a chef. Uh, I also learned the humility of getting fired on the spot. And, uh, you know, and that probably connects pretty strongly to, I would say, the, re the rest of my career and other mistakes that I have made, which are around how I treat people. And there's nothing more important 
than continuing to treat people right. And I have, uh, I've made mistakes of not treating people right and, and seen leaders do it as well. And I would say that in, in my current job uh, and in my current role, the most important thing I want to do is to, con- is to treat people the way I want to be treated and with respect and, and in a way that makes them feel passionate about the mission that we're all on together. And when I've, when I haven't felt that way, it has not made me want to work at that place. And, you know, I, and I've lost a job over it before. Uh, and, and so that's, that's what I want to do and what I always want to get better at doing. I, I don't think we ever, um, we ever fully mature in, in the way that we deal with each other. And it's something I want to keep growing at. Yeah, that's a, a almost quite profound note to end on now. I fully agree. So thank you very much, uh, Noah Brodsky, for joining us on How I Got Here this week. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Okay, so you've been listening to another episode of How I Got Here. That's Mozio and FocusWire's weekly podcast where we talk to the entrepreneurs and innovators in travel, tourism, and hospitality. If this is your first visit to our show, um, that's a shame because there's another 60 episodes ahead of this one. So, But uh, you can go back, go through the archive. It's all on focuswire.com. If you are inspired by what you've heard, you can always leave a rating as well on all the usual places. That's uh, Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Alexa, all the usual places. Leave us a review. Uh, tell us what you think. We always love to hear what you have to say about our show. So once again, from David and I, thank you very much to Noah, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.